You're listening to C103's Cork Today podcast. Phone and text lines are currently closed. As we welcome you along to the programme, WhatsApp in already from somebody who signs themselves a uh, wife of a serving member of Angarda Siakona, who describes herself as being both upset and angry in very equal measures. And this is to do with the story that broke yesterday and it came from GSOC. And of course, GSOC are the Garda watchdog and they have announced that uh, an officer is to be prosecuted over his driving in relation to an incident in which three criminals were killed. They were killed on the N7 in uh, Dublin. Now, it actually happened um, two years two years ago and they were fleeing Gardaí. Now, last night, senior sources said that because of this particular case and other long-term issues surrounding the Garda's pursuit policy, there may be a future and legitimate concern that officers simply will not be prepared to try to tackle burglary gangs in their patrol cars on the streets or through the uh, country roads. Some Gardaí, according to sources, are saying that they're simply not prepared to drive now because A, they're going to be putting their own lives at risk and they do it just to try and keep the public uh, safe. But also now they could face being criminalised. Now, the case in particular happened on the 7th of July twenty. 21. So nearly uh, two years ago, it was Dean Maguire, he was a 29-year-old, Carl Freeman was a 26-year-old and Graham Taylor was a 31-year-old, all very young men. All three were killed when the BMW vehicle that they were driving burst into flames. But that was following a head-on collision with a truck. But the problem was they were driving on the wrong side of the carriageway when that accident happened on the 7th of July. And obviously they were being pursued by a Garda car. All of the mem- they were members of a Talib-based criminal gang that had specialised in burglaries. And then they, it all came to light this week at the coroner's uh, court. And it was actually at the coroner's court it was revealed that a South Dublin-based Garda is to be charged with a driving offence for his alleged role in the pursuit of this burglary gang members. Now, we don't know yet the exact wording of the offence, but it, it looks like it, it, is, it is going to be some kind of a driving offence. The Garda Representative Association and also the Association of Garda Sergeants and Inspectors, they all came out yesterday and criticised the move and they described it as extremely concerning. And this comes, I suppose, at a time as well when Morale within Angarda Siakona, we know, is very low. We know we have a problem in retaining members of Angarda Siakona. Some people, as soon as they get to retirement age, they're gone. Others are deciding to leave the force. There's been a problem with trying to recruit people to join Angarda Siakona. There's been big, big recruitment drives. I mean, once upon a time, it was a really tough competition to get into Angarda Siakona, and there certainly Every single year there was more applicants than more places and that's not the case now. It's getting tougher and tougher. And I think when we get cases like this, uh, when cases like this start to get uh, highlighted, I think it will stop some people and to say, do I really want to go into a job where I'm 
I think I'm doing the best that I can do and I, and I feel I'm doing my job to the best of my ability and then lo and behold somebody looks at it and says no you're going to be prosecuted and uh, you're going to face uh, face a prosecution. It is a tough tough one. Now we're going to have to wait uh, to see what the DPP is going is charging this guy with and obviously we're going to, have to hear more about the particular case which I certainly can understand why that wife of the serving member of Angarda Siakona is commenting today and I can understand uh, why she is upset and, and angry at the same time but and I can also see it from the ordinary rank and file members of Angarda Siakona they certainly will start to question if they are going out and they see and recognise a car that they know belongs to uh, criminals and they decide to give chase you know will they, will they stop and of course criminals are probably rubbing their hands with glee saying isn't this a great story for us 0818 103 103 uh, John Paul taking your calls. Now, I want to go uh, straight to the phone lines uh, because um, I want to join uh, Paul Byrne, who is the Southern correspondent with Virgin Media News, because this is a story that I know Barry has been highlighting on our news this morning. And it's Gardaí investigating all the circumstances in relation to a man who's presented himself with gunshot wounds at Cork University Hospital. And it was earlier this morning. Paul Byrne joins me. Good morning to you, Paul. Good morning, Patricia. I suppose, firstly, do we know the condition of this man? My understanding is that he is critical but stable after he presented himself to CUH in the early hours of this morning. Um, He somehow managed to make his way from Manor, uh, Wilton Manor in Wilton, which is about 100 yards from Cork University Hospital. It's unclear whether he staggered across the road or drove himself there. There are mixed reports as to how he got to the hospital. But once he did get there, he collapsed and underwent surgery. Uh, and a very unusual sight, I imagine, at Cork University Hospital for somebody to present with a gunshot wound. Yeah, I mean, medics were uh, completely shocked. Um, you know, you'll always have the ambulance crews turning up with a, an injured party. Uh, this time, however, this man in his 40s arrived at the doors of the accident and emergency, which incidentally are now part of a crime scene and Gardaí are actually there at the moment carrying out a forensic examination of that area as well. But uh, medics uh, took care of the injured party. That man is in his 40s. He's from the north side of the city um, and um, he collapsed And but he's been undergoing surgery. My understanding is that he received at least one gunshot wound to the stomach and a number of spent cartridges were found at the scene once Gardaí uh, made their way to the so, area. So he was obviously able to say where, where the shooting incident had happened? He was, he was, and um, it's unclear whether he lives there or whether he was visiting there. Uh, all the circumstances are under investigation. That scene at Manor, uh, Wilson Manor, is currently sealed off. You have the usual uh, Garda uh, squad cars, you have forensic officers and the Garda tape, a vast area cordoned off there now at the moment. And lots and lots of people waking up there this morning to find that uh, Garda are on their doorstep uh, in white suits and carrying out a, a detailed uh, forensic examination. People obviously uh, extremely shocked and distressed this morning to wake up to find that this has happened uh, just outside their door. And when you say that the Accident and Emergency Department is, is also now uh, a crime scene, is that open to the general public? Oh, it is open. Oh, but is I mean, okay. obviously the, 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 the area that he walked in will be forensically examined. Maybe there might be traces of um, uh, perpetrator's DNA or anything like that. Okay. Any, clues to the crime will try they'll try to gather any clues uh, you know that they can and the guardian now appealing for any witnesses 
Yeah, as always, anybody who was around that area uh, between 5 and 5.30 this morning, uh, between quarter to 5 and 5.30 this morning, anybody who may have witnessed the man making his way to CUH, who may have witnessed anything unusual in the area, they'll also be appealing to people who were in that area who may have dash cam footage to contact them. And, uh, you know, there's lots and lots of CCTV in the area, so there'll be hours and hours of footage to be harvested in the next couple of hours. And while it was the very early hours of the morning, you would have people out and about shift workers, people commuting to work, there would be people around. Ah, uh, yeah, no matter what time of day or night, there's people always around Cork University Hospital. It's a very, very busy area, Wilson Roundabout. So, I mean, somebody must have seen something. And again, Gardy would be appealing to anyone who has come across anything unusual to make contact with them. And, you know, remember, Gardy will always treat any information extremely uh, sensitively and, you know, they will take everything on board in the strictest of confidence. Okay, listen, thank you for that, um, uh, Paul, and uh, we appreciate you joining us. Thank you. Thanks very much. That is uh, Paul Byrne, Southern Correspondent with Virgin Media News. And on the story I mentioned of uh, GSOC uh, announcing, the guy, the watchdog announcing that an officer is to face prosecution over his driving in relation to that incident where three uh, criminals uh, died a couple of years ago. Eddie said we will be the laughing stock of Europe if we end up going after members of Angarda Siakona. Surely this this case and this story is only encouraging criminals to carry out further acts as if they go ahead, they know uh, that they can uh, th- they know they can go ahead and that nobody is going to uh, chase them. It'll only give them more uh, confidence. Anne in Mitchellstown says there is a lack of Gardaí on the beat. One of the reasons for this is that they don't have the resources and then there isn't enough Gardaí. Many are leaving the force. No, mon- no wonder when you hear this type of carry on and someone else says this is an absolute disgrace if this member of Angarda Siakona is prosecuted. As I say we don't have the exact wording. All we know that he is going to be charged with some kind of a driving offence and we're going to have to wait uh, and see uh, exactly what case they have against this member of Angarda Siakona. Jim on the case of the um, Garda officer who is to face prosecution over his driving in the incident where the three criminals were, were killed for driving the wrong way down the N7 uh, a little under two years ago. Jim says our laws in this country seem to favour the criminals all of the time like what's happening in this particular case where the criminals now won't be chased and I'm sure that gang knew they were driving the wrong way down the motorway um, yeah they did because they were trying to probably get away from the Garda that was chasing him anyway but like the law remember there was once a law says Jim where an intruder could sue the house owner if they got injured while robbing your house. I also remember that at one of that gang's funeral uh, where they got the hearse to speed to the cemetery and there was a floral bouquet of a screwdriver as a symbol of his life as a burglar and his life of uh, crime. And, I, and I'd forgotten that story Jim until you sent in, sent in your text and it actually it wasn't a floral tribute of a screwdriver somebody actually brought it screwdriver and a torch they were the items that were brought to the altar to remember that his his life had been as a convicted burglar it was uh, one of the gang Dean Maguire um, who had died along with the other two uh, associates um, The it was his funeral was held in Tala and um, the there was a poster also in the church that drew a lot of criticism uh, at the time and it was a 
a poster remembering this guy and the words on it was R.I.P. Dean, you know the score, get on the floor, don't be funny, give me the money. You know the score, get on the floor, don't be funny, give me the money. It seemingly it was his catchphrase when he was, if he broke into a house and there was uh, somebody inside in the house and then symbols that were brought to the altar at the offertory procession, obviously remembering his life included a torch, a screwdriver, a reg plate, because I'm, I'm assuming he used false number plates, cigarettes, a lighter, uh, his Canada Goose jacket and a bottle of uh, Bulmers. It's just absolutely shocking. And also somebody who was paying a, a tribute to him in the church, one of his uh, relatives, you know, where, where somebody goes up on the altar and remembers him, actually said at the end, sorry for the language, Father, and then rest in peace, you, and used the full F word, you, mm legend. Oh, it's incredible. Yeah, I was. I'd, I completely forgot about that. But that is, yes, that is the uh, very same case. Anyway, let's wait and see what comes out. Because as, as of yet, even the member of the, 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 the member of Angarda Shikona doesn't know the exact wording of what he's going to be charged with, except he's going to be charged with some kind of a driving uh, offence. Email Patricia now with your story or comment. Cork today at c103.ie. Can you talk to me? today on C103. I can see a lot of texts and commentary coming in in relation to that case of that member of Angarda Shikona who's to face prosecution over his driving in relation to that incident where those criminals were killed. I will come back to it but I want to move to a different topic because this week the Minister of State for Retail Business Neil Richmond tried to secure commitments from all of the leading retailers to reduce their prices and to pass on the savings to consumers. However, Galway chef and restaurateur JP McMahon and says Irish people don't value food enough to pay a high price for it. And JP McMahon uh, joins me this morning. Good morning to JP. Morning, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Now, you're not going to be very popular on this one. Why do you believe Irish people? Why, why, do, why don't we value our food? Um, it's not that we, I don't think we, we, we don't want to pay a high price for it, but I don't think we like paying too much for food. And I, I think it's a very complex issue, Um in relation to Ireland. But it, it seems since I wrote this article that a lot of people have got in touch all over the world. And I I think now it's actually a problem. Someone in Canada actually was just uh, was just chatting to them. And I think the problem is, is that the, the our model for food is to produce loads and then sell it in the supermarket. And unfortunately, that's the way most of us encounter food is the price of it in the supermarket. And when that most of the time that price is is um, is low, I wouldn't say it's cheap all the time, but it's it's low. I mean, the supermarket model is to try and bring the customer in. And and then we, I suppose, feel that that's that that's the the price of food. So when we go out to a cafe or a restaurant and we're charged more, we we imagine the food is expensive because we're basing it on the supermarket. But I mean, the the supermarket doesn't have the same model as the restaurant and whether you have staff or insurance or energy or all these different things. And I suppose. I wrote it to, I suppose, try and just balance the argument because I do believe that we should have value in food and I do believe food should be accessible to all. But I think sometimes the food industry is unfairly um, stigmatized because we're asking things of the food industry that we don't ask other industries, whether that's the fashion industry or clothing or like we're not demanding clothing make less profit. We're demanding that 
food retailers make less profit. And I suppose my point was just, well, why is that? Why are we having this conversation about about food now? Yeah, because I thought you made a, a really good argument on the, the price of smartphones, which are ridiculously yeah. expensive. Oh, 100 percent. And someone actually someone told me about I never even knew sunglasses. So if you take the average pair of designer sunglasses, they're made for about 10 or 20 euro and they're sold for 200. So that's like a thousand percent markup Um, and people pay for that. And food like if you if say if I buy, I don't know, a steak and it costs me 750 or 10 euro to buy for the restaurant um, and I sell it at 35, that's about a 65 percent markup. And that that kind of rough keeps the restaurant going about 65 percent and the the restaurant the supermarket model is probably about 25 to 30 so i think we get incensed a lot about like butter going up 40 cent but then when a smartphone goes up 50 euro yeah, we no. all seem to run yeah. out and buy it yeah no, and we I all know. seem to go that's really good value that a smartphone is 600 euro yeah but we don't ask well why if it's made for 60 euro why why is that company allowed to make that much profit but we we say the butter producer can't make as much because everyone deserves butter i don't know i again i don't have the answers to this i just it's more that i felt it was just something that needed to be talked yeah, about yeah and I, I i i think you know kudos to you i thought it was a really good article and the debate needs to be happening because i think you know when it comes to dining you'll often hear people say oh when i went to spain i was able to eat out and it was only 50 euro i went to my local restaurant and it cost me 3 times Times that is is that a very unfair comparison comparing us to abroad? Oh, hundred percent. Don't get me wrong. I love going to Spain and I love eating in Spain. And it's I wouldn't say it's cheap. I'd say it's less expensive than Ireland. But we have to remember, and I've had chefs that have gone to Spain to work in Spain. The Spanish wages are a half, if not a third less than or two thirds less than Ireland. So an average chef could get 250 euro a week in Spain and that chef could be making five, five to 600 euro a week in Ireland. So when you add that all up, of course, it's easy to go to a bar in Spain and have a few tapas. And of course, their tax on alcohol is a lot less than ours. You can have a beer and then all of a sudden you've only spent 15 euro. And I love that. that that's great. But we can't. I think it's important to keep in mind that we're much closer to the Scandinavian model of in terms of wages and cost. And if you go to Copenhagen, which I've gone to uh, a number of, time, number of times, Copenhagen makes Ireland look cheap in terms of paying for food and, and food in, in supermarkets because the wages there are a lot higher and also the taxes are a lot higher. It's 25% across the board. And we're, our food tax is 13% at the moment. Yeah, and, and I saw um, one of our own uh, local restaurants uh, here in uh, Cork, Fishy Fishy in Kinsale. Uh, Martin Shanahan is getting a lot of publicity at the moment because his uh, latest gas bill came in and it's over uh, €2,200. Euro. That's just a one month gas bill. Uh, oh, and uh, and uh, obviously that has yes. to be factored into the price that he's going to charge somebody going into his restaurant. Yes. And I, so I think I think I think customers, I mean, I love to educate people. And I think customers need to realize when they sit down in a restaurant or if it's a cafe for a simple piece of cake or a scone that like you're not really just paying for that scone and butter. And if you say you get extra butter and it's 50 cent and you go, sure, like butter costs 10 cent. But like what you're what you're paying for is the energy, the lighting, the staff, the kitchen boarder who's going to wash the plate, the person who's going to bring the plate to you. Like I always think it's the experience that you're you're paying for to sit down in that restaurant. And also, of course, you can sit there for an hour after you've eaten your scone in many 
phase and no one's going to throw you out. But that that all that experience still needs to be paid for. Like most of the time when someone comes in for a cup of coffee and has spends three euro in a cafe and if they sit there for an hour, that's like that's not enough for the cafe to stay open. And but the cafes, I think, are really reasonable and they just let people sit there, read the newspaper because they know goodwill is really important. So I think that sometimes when you get charged for an extra butter, an extra cream. I think it's worthwhile talking to the restaurateur or whoever it is about why that needs to be charged, as opposed to just going on social line and venting and saying, I was charged this much for uh, extra cream or they charged me this much for a chicken roll. And don't get me wrong. Like I saw that chicken roll for 16 euro. I'm not going to pay 16 euro for a chicken roll. Yeah, uh, I don't think that's good value. But I'm not saying that that it's it's an argument whether it's uh, and it's an argument between cheap and expensive. It's I think it's an argument around value. And if you go into an establishment and you feel that you haven't had good value, then I think it's important to say, yeah, I didn't have good value there. But if you go in and it's a beautiful chicken roll with local chicken and I know that the wrap was made there by the chefs and there's so many different factors. And that's why when you post a receipt uh, with something on it, you don't have any context to what was happening at that time, you know. Yeah, and certainly in Dublin, you'll see a lot of people posting receipts. But traditionally, that's to do with drink and the price of drink in Dublin. Yeah, and, and also I think it's funny that like people seem to get excited when the things are in Dublin are expensive. Like the reason I don't have a restaurant in Dublin is the our, like the rent, our rent is, if we put an ear into, into Dublin, the rent would be about 10 times what we're paying. And I can't charge 10 times more for the food or five times more even. So like I think people should expect, and Cork City I think is similar because inside Cork you, you have a higher rent than you would have outside Cork. Yeah. So I think you should expect that if you go into a, a major city or a main street that you will probably pay a euro more for your coffee or two euro more for your sandwich because most of that is going to go to the rent and not to the the owner making vast sums of profit or anything Yeah, the, like o- that, the overheads are, are higher and I mean the, the, and the big overhead like when I quoted Martin Shanahan from F- Fishy Fishy the energy prices uh, JP and, and it doesn't look like they're going to come down anytime soon so you know we, no, we can yeah. expect to see these prices for the foreseeable future Honestly, I think things like particularly in restaurants and, and I, I, I hate to say this, but I think restaurants are going to get more expensive and there will be less of them because I think it's getting uh, it's a, there's a tipping point at how much like you can you can absorb in terms of like our ESB in Cava quadruple. So it went from 25,000 a year to 100,000 and it's maybe it's gone back to about 70 now, but it'll never go back to 25 ever. Like it's not that like that pre-COVID price. I don't know where it's gone, but I just don't see see us ever getting back there. So like and also the minimum wage has gone up twice. And what the minimum wage does, and I was explaining this yesterday, is that if the government increases the minimum wage by a euro, really what it is, is the government giving the people on the lowest income a rise of a euro. But what, what happens is that 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 goes all the way up the line to the very top. And then people, everyone expects an extra euro because the person beneath them got an extra euro. So what it, there's a knock on effect of an accumulation of prices sorry wages and then uh, particularly after covid we had crazy wage inflation where i the wages were just out of out of control because there wasn't enough staff and people were paying people were being paid paid obscene um, amounts to do very uh, norm, normal jobs like you deliver food or um wash dishes like they were getting paid the equivalent of uh, of of chefs because there was no labor yeah, yeah. And so for the foreseeable future, if anything, you're saying prices will go higher. 
I th- I think I think they will. I I honestly think I think restaurants who are who try. I mean, we were looking at the menu in in Cava and we were putting up some prices, but a lot of prices I left because I do because I, I I appreciate like I'm in the business of hospitality and I need customers to feel happy when they leave. So it's a, it's a it's a balancing act at the moment, and we'll try and absorb some and and pass some on and see and see what we can do. So it's just um I think that I think what customers should be looking for his value and then possibly I also think in the last 20 years particularly Celtic Tiger we kind of like because there was an explosion of restaurants we kind of felt that well everyone should be able to eat out all the time and I, I think that's not that, that's not a good uh, sign either I think we should also be trying to make family meals at home as well and I think sometimes we need a better balance and uh, I think I think I ate out twice uh, like growing up in 10 years yeah. I think <laughs> do you know what I mean yeah, and, yeah. and now I bring my kids out sometimes twice a week and, yeah. they, and they, they literally don't value it at all. That's a good point. And that's, not yeah. their, that's not their fault, you know. Yeah. I think I went out with my communion on my birthday. Yeah, yeah. Something like and that. And your, your confirmation or, then was the next and big my one. my confirmation. Yeah. And and now the kids are like, sure, we want to go home. It's boring going eating out. And I'm going like, do you not see? Like, But I, I'm coming from a different perspective, you know. Okay. And are you looking forward to a busy tourist season in, in Galway this year, JP? Yeah, I, I, I hope so. I mean, as I said, I think the, the customers are there there's there's lots of people that want to eat out. The 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 prices are higher and the margins are less. So I think everyone, I think restaurateurs and 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 customers are both in the same boat. And uh, I think that hopefully we'll just have a, a, the weather will be good. Hopefully, and there'll be there'll be uh, some tourists around and we'll have a good summer. Okay, listen, uh, good luck uh, with it. And and I think well done for putting forward the reality of what is happening for a lot of restaurants, all restaurants all over the country. So you, you you've got to be. Uh, complimented for that. Listen, it was a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you for that. Thanks for joining us. pleasure. Thank you. That is, bye-bye. That is uh, JP McMahon who is a Galway chef and a restaurateur and somebody says nobody should sit with a cup of coffee for an hour in a restaurant. That is simply unfair. And then Joe says our um, uh, local hotel serves lovely food but their prices are insane. Tiny bit of brie with some lettuce, nearly nine euros we're eating at home. And you see that is the problem. Even though I think JP outlined it, it's, it's not that they're making massive profits, it's just that everything for them has gone up as well but it gets to the stage of what is it the law of diminishing returns if they charge too much people simply start stop going to that establishment and stop going out now nine out of ten adults made a donation to charity last year but new research shows that general trust and confidence in charities has actually declined to find out why and to find out more I'm joined by Helen Martin Helen is the CEO of the charities regulator and they carried out the survey good morning to you Helen Good morning, Trisha. And uh, th- thank you for joining us. Now, why are we less trusting of charities? What Was there any particular reasons cited? Well, what a lot of people who were responding to this uh, survey were saying is that really there were a number of, of factors where, where trust had fallen and things were around lack of transparency, so not knowing maybe where their donation went. Um, and, and that would be a key thing and that came out because when we did the survey, nine out of ten people said that knowing how their donation was used and also seeing evidence of what had been achieved by the charity would improve levels of, of trust and confidence. 
Now, what I would say is that the fact that there is a dip, we did do this back um, really during COVID when we originally did this survey. So it has fallen slightly since then, but you'll recall, obviously, during COVID, people were maybe even more conscious of charities and the great work that they do. Um, And what we've actually seen is that, yeah, it has fallen uh, in Ireland, but actually that that we've seen similar results in places like Scotland and and England and Wales. But I I think what, what was perhaps most interesting about this is that when we ask people about the kind of factors that impact on their decisions to donate. And when we asked them about that back in uh, 2020, 2021, 65% were talking about um, things like the transparency and um, knowing where their money went, whereas that had gone up to 80% this time. So it just shows how I think people hopefully are, are hearing the message from the charities regulator to make sure that they inform themselves before they donate um, to any to any organisation. You'll, so, often, you'll yeah. often hear a lot of criticism of the salaries of the chief executives and and the other executive officers uh, within the charity sector. Did that feature and do you understand why some of those CEOs are paid such high wages? Yeah, that was certainly a factor as well. There's a perception around um, high, what people would term kind of high administration costs and also high salaries of senior in- employees. And that's something that, it, you know, has come up previously. It, it came up when we did it a couple of years ago as well. And um, I, I, I understand it was, I, I understand it in that traditionally people think of charities as being entirely volunteer uh, run. And while certainly in Ireland, there are a significant number of charities that only have volunteers, they have no paid staff. Um, it is a, a fact of life that for charities to provide uh, certain services and to get any kind of scale, so if they're very big charities, they do have administration costs. They do need office staff, uh, you know, to arrange appointments for people going out to assist people maybe with disabilities and, and need care at home, that kind of thing. Um, and similarly, you know, if you're a massive charity, you've got significant funds, you're operating, you know, across the world, and um, you're going to require a, a senior management team. And charities are no different to any other kind of, of business uh, or business yeah. exactly, in that they are competing with the private sector for staff. So um, it is important that um, obviously in order to attract the staff that they are they are paying competitively. Yeah, now what yeah. I would say is that it, you know it, you really have to look at each individual situation. There is no general rule about oh, what would be considered a high salary or oh, that's too high. But all charities regardless of, of their size where they're spending money um, like salaries, that that constitutes you know a private benefit to the individual. They're getting a salary. It does have to be reasonable. It does have to be it have to be absolutely necessary in order for them to do their work. Um, and, and that is really, really important. So it's it's not that they can go out and pay whatever they wish. They absolutely can't. Um, and perhaps there's there's probably a little bit more constraints on charities than there would be, we'll say, in, in the private sector. But is there any way of finding out, uh, Helen, when you donate money to a charity, say you're going to donate €100, euro, is there any way of finding out how much of that €100 euro actually goes to the cause? Well, this is, this is one of the things, I suppose, it's a challenge for charities. That's something that um, charities, you know, should be out there. And a lot of charities do. They provide that information. That's about providing transparency in relation to your finances and be willing to, to get out there with those messages. So we think there's a real opportunity here for charities to increase trust and confidence that the public have in their individual charities by being, you know, more transparent. What I would say is that there's a lot of information available on the, the public register of charities. So there's a register of every uh, charity in Ireland because all charities are required to be registered. And you can find that on charitiesregulator.ie. 
And on that, what you'll see is you'll find, be able to find, well, first of all, you'll be able to find if the organisation you want to donate to is in fact a charity. That's really important that people always check that. Then the next thing you'll be able to see is what their activities were in the previous year and, and what they do more generally. And there's also information up there, Patricia, in relation to their finances in previous years. So, you know, what income they got and what expenditure they had. And you can actually see the different sources of income as well. OK. And, and, did, and did you find from your survey that people like and prefer to donate to say a small local charity where they actually know everybody that's involved? Yeah, what we've seen, and again, this is similar to a couple of years ago when we did it, is that people had the most, uh, the highest levels of trust and confidence um, in local, in local based charities. Um, and I, I think, you know, that's really to do the fact they can actually see them. You know, you know yeah. the people involved, yeah. you see them around your town, maybe tidy towns, doing work in your town. Um, but, but certainly that was one of the top uh, types of charity that people were um, donating to. The top ones were health-related, homeless refuge services, and coming in there really strongly um, at three was local community organisations. Yeah, that 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 doesn't that really doesn't uh, surprise me. What about the rise in the cost of living, though, um, Helen? Um, are we seeing a decrease in the actual monetary value of what people are donating? Um, we've seen the number of people who are donating money um, fall. That we definitely saw saw a fall from a couple of years ago. But for the people who are still donating money, they're actually giving more than they were a few years ago. But what we've seen in, um, is a corresponding rise in the number of people who are donating goods to charities. So I think that's probably an indication of people, you know, as a result of the cost of living crisis, not having the money, but at the same time still wanting to support their local charities, so still wanting to donate and doing it in the way that they give, with they uh, donated goods into charity shops or, you know, they, they give them in, in, you know, out at the door if, if a bag comes in. By the way, how are charity shops doing? Charity shops were were doing were doing well. Um, certainly, they had uh, their, the amount of footfalls that they've seen. It seemed it was increasing, judging by the number of people who responded to this, saying that they were shopping in, in charity shops. I think that's probably to do as well with people being more conscious about um, the environment and reusing. Um, so I think that's that's positive for charities. What I would say though is, of course, not all charities have charity shops. So, um, you know, you know, the fact that there's been an increase in donated goods isn't necessarily going to be, um, uh, isn't going to be useful, I suppose, to all charities. There's still a requirement for most charities and um, for that donated income um, in monetary terms. Yeah, and actually, when you mentioned door-to-door collections uh, for for, cha- for charity shops. There was a time when we were constantly giving advice to people who were getting these stickers and these bags through the door and we couldn't find out anything about the so-called charities that they were representing. You do need to be careful. I don't know if they've stopped or not. Unfortunately, they haven't um, oh. stopped, but we've been doing a campaign over the last few years with Angarda Siakana. So what we always say to people is, when you get those bags in, to be honest, you can actually kind of tell when they're not. Mm. I think when you can tell when they're not legitimate. Um, but the best thing to do is to look up um, charitiesregulator.ie, pop in the name of the charity into the, re- the register search there, and you'll find out if they're a charity or not. And if if they're saying they're a charity and they're not, um, absolutely, um, you know, people shouldn't be donating to them. Um, I, I do know, though, unfortunately, that there are some people who, regardless of whether they, they're confident that the, the organisation is charging or not, see the way of, get, of getting rid of items, so they'll just put out the bag anyway. 
And um, we would absolutely discourage that, as I'm sure all the local authorities would as well, because I think that's, that's where you potentially get into issues like, you know, fly tipping and, uh, and things like that. So if you intend to give your donated goods to a charity, you know, there are charities who do do the, those um, collections door to door and will we'll have those stickers and those bags. But just make sure that they are registered charities. Yeah, and I find, Chris, we've got so many fantastic charity shops here in Cork, you know, and, and nearly all of them will take in your items. Uh, yeah. we'll, donate locally because it's, it's going to stay in, in the community as well. But your, your, your advice then is, because is, all charities, you say, must be registered. Go on your website and it's important to check who you're donating to. Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, it's, it's the best way to make sure that if you're giving your hard earned cash or donated goods or your time as a volunteer, um, that you're, you're doing it with um, a registered charity. But with nine out of 10 of us making a donation last year, we're still a generous nation, aren't we, um, Helen? Oh, we absolutely are. And we see this all of the time, you know, even in response to um, different international crises, you know, even during COVID, during the Ukraine um, war, we've seen, you know, Irish people are always really, really generous. Uh, And really what we'd like to say to people is, you know, obviously keep that up, but make sure that your donations are going where they're needed and by checking the register. Um, And also, you know, charities themselves have good information on their websites and, 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 you know, available to people. And, you know, don't be afraid to ask a charity that you're interested in and that you want to donate to for further information. Um, Charities should be fully transparent. Um, They're accountable to the public. That's where they get their money from. And um, they shouldn't be afraid to answer any questions that any member of the public might have. Okay, and your website is? Charities Regulator. Charitiesregulator.ie Helen, it was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for that and thanks for joining us. Thank you. Uh, Good morning to you. That is uh, Helen Martin, who is the CEO of the Charities uh, Regulator. As I say, we are still a generous, generous nation. We have never really lost that, have we? Even in hard times, uh, we'll always find a little to try to help somebody else out or somebody who we perceive is not doing as well as we are. Thank you to somebody who sent me in a WhatsApp to point out that on this day, the 12th of May, 17 years ago, Mallow Sugar Factory Actually, uh, ceased producing sugar. Every week, says this texter, we now see the British sugar tankers importing sugar into Ireland. Now, Board Nimona uh, have, are to stop manufacturing peat briquettes. And guess what? We're importing peat briquettes from Germany. Do we ever learn? Uh, no, is the simple answer. OK, somebody responding to JP McMahon, the Galway restaurateur and chef that I spoke with in the last hour. Somebody saying, wasn't he a fabulous communicator? I actually thought he was as well. And actually, if you go online and, and see the article, I think he initially wrote it earlier this week. I think it was in the Irish Times. It's got picked up by other news outlets uh, since. It just made a lot of of uh, sense and you know it made a lot of explanation as to why when you go out for me why everything has got so expensive it's to do with the overheads and the cost of doing business in this country anyway this uh, is is from a West Cork listener he's a fabulous communicator I do think that uh, we don't we we simply do not appreciate the super quality of our food products in this country food is uh, about a lot more than cost just wait until all the Irish vegetable growers are forced out of business what about beef fish and dairy industries, food security should be more important than an extra 40 cent that we're saving this week on our butter. That's from a West Cork listener. While Tim reckons while the price of food has increased, he reckons the quality 
hasn't improved. If anything, it's actually deteriorating. Has anybody else noticed that? 0818103103. And then a huge huge amount of commentary uh, to do with the story that I started the programme uh, with on this member of Angarda Siakona who is to face prosecution uh, for driving while giving chase to three criminals, three burglars, three well-known burglars in Dublin. They were part of the uh, the Tala gang, I think they were known as, and they were uh, known, they specialised in burglaries, so much so that at the funeral of one of these guys, they actually brought up a screwdriver and a torch as a symbol of the type of work that he was involved with. Really, really bizarre thing to happen at a funeral. Anyway, a lot of people very upset on behalf of uh, this member of Angarda Siakona. We don't have any names or any details or age or anything or uh, rank. I'm assuming he's a, a rank and file. Um, member but we don't know yet. Anyway Donny says no way in the world that any judge will convict a member of Angarda Siakona. If a Garda cannot give chase how does justice prevail? Many Gardaí remember risk their lives while out there giving chase. Uh, Donny was a former police officer in England. He was based out of Luton and he said back when he was a member of the police force in, in, in England if they were giving chase they'd have to radio through They'd be given clearance and then once they were given clearance from control, off they could go and they could break any speed limit to chase and, and they were obviously covered. I don't know if something similar happens here or not or if the Gardaí just see something and respond immediately. I, I just don't know. Uh, Michael is in Mallow says, I know that the three guys were up to no good, but if the Gardaí was doing nothing wrong, then he really has nothing to worry about because are we saying today that the Gardaí above the law, are we looking to be more like America where the police seem to get immunity from prosecution for killing people? And that's from Michael and Mallow. Well, well no Nobody wants to see the model of the police force in in America for sure because we've had very high profile cases. But you're wrong in saying that the in America the cops in America get get immunity from uh, from prosecution for killing people. We've seen very high profile cases where members of the police force have and rightly gone to jail uh, for what they've done. So so I think you're wrong on on that one. But but yes, I also accept your point that if he's done nothing wrong, but what, but I think it's the whole thing of bringing him to court that people are most upset about. Somebody said, Patricia, that member from Garda Siakona should be awarded a medal for bravery for trying to chase down those criminals. He shouldn't be charged. Somebody else says it's the DPP needs to be reviewed. Please recall the recent high profile murder case where the accused was found not guilty. The Gardaí knew that a murder charge wasn't going to work but the DPP still went ahead with the case and then we have this case with the Garda just out doing his job uh, ending up heading before the courts. The DPP's office and GSOC needs to be overhauled and they need to be given a dose of reality. Someone else says can you imagine the scramble in the legal profession for compensation cases if this Garda is convicted, it's an absolute disgrace. The DPP needs to wake up, as does the uh, TDs. Patricia, this is a joke. It wouldn't happen in any other country, said somebody else. Only here, it's a medal that Garda should be getting for bravery and dedication in his job. While somebody else says, so did the Garda have the advanced driving course or ESDS training if not, then there's likely a case to be answered. I simply don't know the answer and, and I still don't know any that he's been charged with a driving offence. I don't know what the offence uh, is. And someone else says, ridiculous, that a Garda is facing prosecution after three thugs died after driving the wrong way down a motorway. 
crashing into an oncoming truck. I mean, that truck driver was lucky he didn't lose his life as well. What are the Gardaí to do? Let them carry on with their law-breaking and thuggery. The Gardaí in question should be awarded, not prosecuted. And that seems to be the theme of what we are getting in uh, today. And actually, we've just spotted that Stephen Breen of the Irish Sun is tweeting that a GoFundMe page has been set up to support the guard who's charged over the car over the car crash. And according to Stephen Breen, now this was in the last half an hour, over 17,000 has already been raised and it's been raised to go towards the guard's legal fees. Because yeah, if he does end up in court, there, there could be very high legal fees, which is something I hadn't uh, thought about. 0818103103. And just a final WhatsApp in on this bunch on a completely different uh, story for us. Listener says, yesterday, I was standing outside a local shop. It was in a North Cork a town. I'm not, I'm not going to name towns or anything in this because I, I don't want the woman to be identified. Anyway, there was a woman in a wheelchair and uh, she was a bit upset. So I went over and I said to her, you know, are you OK? Can I help you in any way? And she told me that the battery in her wheelchair had died. It needed to be recharged. One of her friends had gone into the shop that she'd just come out of to ask and explain what was going on and could she charge the wheelchair, only to be told by one of the staff members, sadly, no, they're not allowed to do that. I felt this was a disgrace. This poor girl was stuck on the footpath uh, crying. After a while, her mother came along with the charger, took her into another shop who did facilitate the charging of the wheelchair. The woman in the wheelchair goes into that first shop every Thursday morning, so it's not as if they didn't know her the staff would know her really well. It's unbelievable that this shop would do this uh, to this uh, young uh, woman. And I don't know if the mother went in and, and spoke to the shop. It just now, I, you know, in in the defence of the first shop, is it to do with the cost of electricity? Is it to do with, you know, the cost of doing business that they, you know, I, even though I don't know how often somebody would arrive into a shop in a case like that to say my wheelchair has died, it needs to, you know, be... And I don't know how long it takes to recharge the battery in a, a wheelchair or how much all of that would cost. But I'm sure if there was a cost, she could have offered to pay something towards the cost of electricity. Is it something like that? But to hear the staff say we're not allowed to do it. I'm just wondering how often does that happen? That somebody in a wheelchair going out and the wheelchair dies and needs to be recharged how often are shops presented with that dilemma? 0818 103 103. C103 Jobs. An office administrator is wanted for EPS in Mallow. CVs please to jobs at epswater.com or you can call them 022 31200. General operatives wanted for power washing, painting, etc. That's in the new market area. You must be over 25. You need to have a full clean driver's license as a company vehicle will be provided. And it's in the new market area. Call JUR on 029 22765. A car mechanic is wanted for the Middleton area. CVs please to clear auto services at gmail.com and help is wanted on a dairy farm it's for milking and tractor driver full and part-time positions available and it's in the Mornabby area 087 226 if you'd like further details on any of the jobs we've just announced or if you want to look at the other jobs that are available you can go online now go to c103.ie forward slash jobs for more this is c103 
Cork Today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group for motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie. Cork branch of ADHD Ireland will be hosting an event in Cork City next week and it aims to raise awareness of the condition among the adult population. To discuss living and working with ADHD, I'm joined by Martin Finn. Now, Martin is the Service Development Manager with the Cork branch of ADH uh, Ireland. And I'm also uh, joined by a broadcaster, podcaster and well-known mental health advocate, uh, Keith Walsh, who was diagnosed at the age of 49. And he's going to be the keynote uh, speaker. Gentlemen, good morning to you both. Hello, Patricia, how are you? Uh, you're very welcome. Martin, can I start with you um, firstly as the service development sure. manager uh, with the Cork branch? I suppose start by outlining what is ADHD. ADHD stands for Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. Um, now, it's not a term that's well loved these days because it's a little bit misleading. Um, it's not actually an attention deficit. It's, it's more that the attention is really unregulated. Uh, and so people with ADHD have plenty of attention, but the attention keeps switching. Uh, and this is why uh, people with ADHD will um, switch tasks, um, be unable to start tasks, be unable to finish tasks. Um, you know, they, there's a lot of different symptoms there. But what ends up happening is that people with the condition find it hard um, in work to organize themselves in relationships to uh, remember important things, you know, collecting the kids maybe from school and this kind of thing. So I suppose ADHD at the point that it impacts uh, these major things like college, work, relationships, um, it's more than just occasional forgetting. It's chronic. um, And that's that's when people would normally go and, and try to get a diagnosis. And Martin, we hear about the condition in children, but are more... And more adults now getting diagnosed. Absolutely, yeah. It's um, it used to be that people thought it was only in uh, young boys, let's say a six-year-old boy bouncing around the classroom, um, and then they discovered that it was in girls. Also, girls have more the in- inattentive type. Um, it's more internalized, where uh, the the girl might be seeming to be doing very well socially and uh, you know doing okay. In, it, in in most things, but then the grades start to slip and, uh, you know, you realise that this child is very dreamy and very distracted and um, that's one thing girls were always missed. Um, and But we know it's in adults too. Um, you know, this, this talk is, is aimed at adults. Um, in adult life, it, it can be quite invisible too. Someone might present very well and... Uh, their lives can be chaos in the background. You know, they... they um, but they're they hiding be, it. They're, they're masking, yeah. We, yeah, yeah. We, we say masking, definitely, yeah. There's there's a big element of um, trying to keep the truth from people and uh, not even being able to admit to yourself that at 40-odd, uh, you, can't, uh, you can't do simple things. Um, and so, yeah, it's very much in the adult population as well. That masking must be absolutely exhausting. Let me bring in uh, Keith Walsh at, the, at this stage, who, who was diagnosed at age 49. Um, Keith, OK, take me back. How did your diagnosis come about? Uh, so my 
my son was diagnosed uh he was having issues with school or school was having issues with him or something uh so his way of learning uh, seemed to be at odds with what was going on in the classroom now he would we would talk to a teacher and the teacher would go god no finn is absolutely wonderful student he puts up his hand he gets involved but finn would come home and be absolutely exhausted sort of tantrums tears wouldn't want to go into school on a Monday. Um, so we couldn't put these two things together. How was he presenting in a classroom situation as, you know, smiley, hands up, all that kind of stuff, and then coming home and saying, I hate school, I don't want to go in, whatever. So we sort of, you know, we looked at a few things, a few dead ends, um, met the wrong people, I suppose. And it happens, you meet the wrong professionals and they, they misdiagnose or whatever. Um, and then it was actually the principal of uh, we moved to a different school and it was the principal of that school recognised what was going on and uh, it was similar to one of our own children so it was Finn, uh, my son it was him, him getting diagnosed and we were going along to the meetings and probably uh, my wife more so than I but we were both doing a bit she was doing more she was pushing it more I was a bit more oh, he'll be grand whatever a bit more relaxed about it she really wanted to make sure um, this got sorted. Fair play to her. Um, but also, she was answering questions for him. And as she answered the questions for him, she was thinking of me. So, you know, when you go through the the, the thing of getting diagnosed, you know, the, your psycho, psychologist or psychotherapist or whatever will ask you a series of questions. And, uh, you know, depending on your answers, and um, you'll get your diagnosis. So, so she was just thinking of me all the time. So she diagnosed me first, long before. <laughs> and she she used to joke about it in the house you know that would be your ADHD and it just seemed to fit you know so I went and got a proper diagnosis then uh, once Finn was sorted and yeah it was um, I'm a raging ADHDer and getting the diagnosis Keith has that changed your life in any way yeah I mean I'd have to say it was a relief like I haven't changed as a person I'm still the same I'm still the same person Um, I'm still the same personality uh, but there was a lot of relief because it explained a lot of things. You know, I was able to say to my wife then, look, you know, like there, there would be occasions where I remember one particular weekend I used to organize comedy nights. So I had a comedy night coming up on a Saturday night. And it was the same Saturday night that myself and my wife were going out to stay in a hotel and go for dinner um, for an anniversary. And also I had a third thing organized on the same night. They were both, the three of them were in different diaries, uh, possibly the same diary, possibly the same calendar. Uh, I was excited about all three of them and talking about all three of them simultaneously to different people. So I'd get off the phone from one, to one person and then I'd be talking to my wife about Saturday. And then but something I said and she said, what are you? What's this? Why, why is that comedy night on Saturday night? I was like, yeah. Um, and then she, uh, it was like I'd organized three different things in the same night. And, and that was not uncommon. But she felt very upset, uh, rightly so. She just, because this was before I got the diagnosis, she was like, well, you clearly don't care uh, about me. This is not important to you. You've just, you know, and that would happen a good bit. So it, I was able to say to Suzanne, my wife, look, this is, this is me. And she, I suppose she felt a bit of relief as well uh, that I didn't not care about her. Yeah, I was yeah. just a bit, I was, it was just a bit ADHD, you know. And when, when you look back at your, your school days, I mean, what was school like for you, Keith? Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, I would have said, I always said school didn't suit me. And, and, and I would have said I hated school. You know, I really liked school up to a certain point. But there must have been a point where I just, it didn't, 
it didn't suit me anymore or whatever because I can remember like you know if I if I think of Miss O'Callaghan's class in third class uh, Miss Duffy's class in second class and first class you know we were doing shows we were you know, a lot of uh, uh, arts and crafts we were knitting sewing you know all those kind of things and then we got into you know uh, I, I don't know who it was fifth class it was serious it was quiet we were learning uh, there was things to be learnt off there was punishment if things weren't learnt off they were preparing us for secondary school and the seriousness of and I just went nah this is not for me and just became disruptive and got in trouble uh, a lot and kind of I suppose you, you hear the thing class clown and yeah, but yeah. you know your reports your, if you look back at your reports even from then like second class third class great 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 fifth class sixth class could do better needs to apply himself more if he focus more more on the work you know if you focus on the work like he does on the football field or something you know so it was like I focused hyper focused and loved things I loved I had no interest in certainly learning in that environment and I know that now looking at Finn how he learns and how clever he is as well uh, once, once he's given the opportunity to learn in a but certain environment. Can you see a difference in Finn now that he, that he has had the diagnosis and are there supports in place for him? Oh, 100%. He had no interest in... He would go in and, and sit down and test and just say, I can't do it. He wouldn't even read it. Um, and he would be convinced that he couldn't do it. And possibly he couldn't do it because I suppose we learned that when it was being taught in the classroom, he couldn't focus enough or he couldn't write down his homework or he couldn't, there was too much going on, whatever way his head was going, he couldn't focus on what was being said and what he needed to learn. He couldn't grasp the bit he needed to learn. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. So he started then, once he got the supports, he starts going in. So he doesn't do Irish anymore. He doesn't do German anymore. So during those classes, he goes in and does maths one-on-one with somebody. So he's doing honours maths and he's getting Brilliant. 100%. Brilliant. Whereas he wasn't, he wasn't even getting a percent before. He's well able. Uh, and I, I was like, what maths? He, he said, I got 100%. And I'm like, that's amazing. What did you, what, what was the... So I don't know what the t- I don't know what it's like. What maths are you doing? You know the way like it's you know is it, is it, is it fr- fractions or yeah, whatever? Are the theorems? Exactly. Yeah, 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 or whatever you're doing. The th- I don't know. I just I, I just know. Once I, just, I look at it, I know what I should do. And, and is yeah, is is a different language? Is is that an issue for somebody with ADHD taking on an, an, an extra language? I think it can be. Uh, I'd imagine like what what I loved about Irish, where I learned Irish best was when I went to the Gale Talk as a young lad. So I I learned through speaking with people, spoken words. Um, yeah. Yeah, and I didn't do well in um, comprehension or 
learning in a classroom or learning the verbs or learning whatever. And the same with French, you know. But but if I spent time in a place, I would learn. You'd pick I'd it say up, yeah. He would be the same. And it's just not worth his time to kind of spend that time, that extra time on trying to grasp a language. It would just be too much. Like, But he would, you know, eventually, you know, or if he lived in the country. You know. And Martin, is Keith's story very typical as an adult that it's only when a child gets diagnosed that they are in Keith's case, his lovely wife's uh, spots. Yeah. You are the very same. Is is that very common? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's it's sometimes it's only when you're sitting in the room with the psychiatrist and you know they're talking about the criteria uh, for ADHD that you know the adults might say that's me, that's me, that's me, and they think about their own childhood and everything matches up and. Of course, ADHD is highly heritable as well. It's it's almost as heritable as height. It's passed down generation to generation. So it's in families, uh, and those families are just wired that way. Like there's there's a high chance if you have a child and you've ADHD yourself, the child would have ADHD also. Um, so that that would make sense. But yeah, like this this kind of story is so familiar. Um, people with ADHD have an interest based brain rather than an importance-based brain. So the neurotypical person has an importance-based brain. They can make themselves do even the most mundane tasks um, because they know they know what the outcome will be. But people with ADHD, they only want, I suppose, the shiny object right now. If it's interesting, they'll do it. If it's not interesting, they find it extremely hard to make themselves uh, do it. And that, that's um, fundamentally down to the uh, lack of... Uh, dopamine, the way dopamine is processed in the brain, um, if you're not getting enough dopamine, um, you're you're trying to generate the dopamine yourself. Well, how do you dop- generate dopamine? You might bounce around the classroom. You know, you might uh, find the most interesting thing in the environment at that moment. Um, and so that's, that's what's happening there. So, yeah, very familiar story to me. Is medication a help offered? So medication, like the just going by the literature and ADHD is is the most researched um, condition in psychiatry. It, it, we're told that 70 to 80 percent of people are helped by medication. Um, now, what we do at ADHD Ireland is we, we, we're on the other side of things in, in that we provide uh, support groups and we provide education and uh, we promote acceptance. So. We're not clinicians. We don't really go near the medication side of things. But, um, but you know, the, according to the literature, it's it's a very effective treatment. Um, but we think that sitting in a room with people who are just like yourself, hearing their stories can be um, very, very effective as well and very healing. And, you know, we, we, we talk about tools and strategies. We help people create routines. Um, we we just give them tools in order to to live their lives. Yeah, to, and it's, that's know. exactly what it is. It's it's learning to live with it. Keith, did you go down the medication route? Uh, I did, yeah, Patricia. Um, and I suppose there are times in life that you have to get things done. Like I work for a company called Think House, advertising, PR, um, marketing. Uh, company in Dublin and you know I have I I work with them three days a week and I have work to do I have things to get done I have to sit at a computer Um, and I'm not saying that 
I don't find the work interesting, but there are aspects of that job that I find less interesting than others. And that's the problem. It's a struggle. It's a dopamine struggle. So your brain is always looking for something even slightly more interesting. So the medication just helps you get up, get your stuff together, get the work done that you need to get done. And in getting the work done, you're sort of creating more dopamine for yourself by finishing a task. So the medication isn't necessarily, it helps you get to a point that you can finish stuff and then the finishing of the, the work kind of gets its own accolades and and uh, and all that kind of stuff. So I find it extremely helpful. Also, um, taking the medication and allows me to do the work I need to do. Um, at the end of the day, I sleep very well, which would be a problem uh, with a lot of ADHD. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, you know, I, I sleep soundly at night. And, well. and Martin, who are you hoping will attend next Wednesday's event? I think... Um, People who maybe are listening in the car right now and going, you know what, I, I think that could be me, but they're not sure. People who have suspected ADHD are people who have been diagnosed and just want to, I suppose, get uh, more information about what it's all about. And, um, you know, just, just I, I want people to, to realize that it's a very common thing at 5% of the population that um that there are treatments for it um and that just you know meeting people like yourself you know meeting your own tribe um can be really really helpful and 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 life changing so so yeah i i think um just if you're curious and if you just if you just want to find out more about it, this is Come a along. perfect talk for you. And it's yeah. on next Wednesday night, half past seven in St. Peter's on North Main Street in yeah. the city. And uh, Keith, who we've, who we've been speaking to, is one of the guest speakers. Listen, we wish That's you both right. luck with it. And Keith, thank you for your honesty in talking about it as well. It's, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks, Patricia. Thank you. Thanks, Patricia. Thank you. Bye. Good morning, Jay. The grand final of the Eurovision Song Contest for 2023 will be held tomorrow night in the Liverpool Arena, where, unfortunately, we now know Ireland will not be represented. But the show must go on. And our Eurovision correspondent is uh, Johnny O'Mahony, who once again joins me. Good morning to you, Johnny. Good morning, Patricia. And you're very welcome. Now, we had semi-final number two last night. Um, Certainly as as good as as the first. And, And I know I was texting Johnny before, during and after. Uh, the BBC certainly are, are doing it well, they, aren't they? They have done a fantastic job. And uh, whoever will be taking over um, from Sunday has a big job, tough act to follow, you know. And uh, they've, it, and not only from what we see on television, the whole surroundings in Liverpool and every, their whole organisation and their... Um, I suppose they've made it such um, a local event and for anyone in Liverpool that you, you could witness that. It's just the whole city. You you know your vision is on and they've really gone all out and made it a big festival, I suppose, and, and party week, party fortnight, I suppose, for many. Um, so, yeah, they've done a great job. The, the show production has been uh, outstanding, very professional, very slick. And uh, I suppose it's what they do best and uh, great, a, a great opportunity to And the other thing that, that I have to say, to, you know, in saying well done to the BBC, they could have just given a nod to Ukraine, but Ukraine are very much front and centre. It's very much Ukraine show with uh, by the BBC. They've really supported, and and you know I think they've they've even em- embellished the support for for uh, Ukraine in 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 this week. It's just it's it's highlighted. You know, for lots of people, it was probably getting on. You know, 
you know, it was on the, on the back burner kind of people were not forgetting about it, but there were other things that were more important. But I think this has brought Ukraine back into the limelight again and made a lot of people, I, I've heard a lot of people, you know, saying how, you know, how we've kind of let, let it let it lie a bit in the sense that not, not forgetting it, but, you know, it wasn't as important as, as it may have been this time last year. But I think it's put it back into the spotlight and given people the need and the reason to, to support more and do more to support Ukraine. Yeah, and I thought that Luke Evans' monologue, the Welsh actor, yeah, I thought that was that was just a stunning piece. Very good. And it, just so very well done and slick. And again, everything just so professional and so, so relevant. Yeah, yeah. And, it, you know, and it got the message about how, you know, devastating this war is without actually talking about the war. I thought it was it was a very, very uh, clever piece. Uh, and then the yes. other thing on what is kind of the breaking story today, the uh, Vladimir Zelensky and I, and I do think this is the right decision. He wanted to do a video address at Eurovision, but he's been turned down. Yeah, I thought that he actually would be doing one that it was kind of I, I thought it was going to happen in the sense that, um, you know, it was there wasn't going to be any publicity about it beforehand, but that he was going to do something. And I, I genuinely expected that for the final. But I don't think that's going to be, that's not the case. Yeah, but I, I, and I can actually see the point they're making. You know, they always are at pains to point out that Eurovision is nothing to do with politics. So, you know, uh, and while, you know, I think a lot of people would like to have seen him feature somehow, I I do actually think uh, the right decision has been made. It's probably, I think the right decision has been made. And even, you know, what I think is great, you know, in the postcards, the Ukrainian clip for every country, it's great to see the, the the best, you know, coming back in those videos that, you know, even though there might be, you know, there's burned out towns and villages and, you know, God knows what across the country. But they've managed to um, show what they've had and hopefully will have again. Yeah. And the beauty you know, and the beauty the, of the country as well. Yeah. Yeah. yeah OK. Yeah. Uh, semi-final number uh, two. Uh, any surprises for you? Um, I don't think there was any surprise. I think the the, the final at uh, the ten that got through, you know, it was it was tough to pick ten to be honest to say that should get through, but um, I, Belgium. I uh, we mentioned this last night. Belgium just came across so very well. It was probably the, his best vocals of the whole. All the I, 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 and I know a lot of people were saying he looked like Boy George with the hat and uh, and all of that. Yeah. I thought it was excellent, and and he was yeah. a bit shaky at the start, but I thought the song yeah, I, was it, very it's catchy. Bound to be nerve wracking, yeah, nerve wracking. But the staging was superb and very well done, and his vocals came across a lot better. And much, I, I, I didn't really before the show. I wouldn't have had it probably in my top ten, but definitely last night. And it's it's up there for, it's up there in the running and they're performing 16th place in the final so it's a good spot to to perform in the final as well so um, I think they've they've uh, I, I can't see winning but they have a very good chance they'll do very well I think Yeah did anyone not get through that you were hoping would get through or deserve to get um, through There was nothing there really of the six that didn't get through I was surprised at Australia how so, good it was <laughs> last night I, I was surprised they got through I I don't yeah. think it's their strongest it's no, they've they've had much better ones, but I I, I thought we'll get through. I just I it was kind it, it was it was performed better than what I saw coming from Australia, say originally, but uh, it's it they, they did a good job on it, and uh, I I I kind of expected it would get through last night from from the performance because again, 
there wasn't. I, I think, and we've said this already, had Ireland been in the second semi-final, they'd, they'd have got, got through, through. I think so as yeah, well. You know, unfortunately, but that's how it is. And the other sort of criticism that I saw and it lit up on, on Twitter, and, and, and I know you messaged me about it as well, was uh, Poland. Um, and while I like it, it's a nice catchy song. It's a kind of a rip-off of what Spain did the previous a, a, year. Yeah. A bad rip A bad rip-off. rip-off. <laughs> A bad rip-off, yeah. <laughs> An amateur rip-off, I suppose. And But listen, they did it and they got through. <laughs> you know, that that's the thing. And it's very difficult from the, the 10 songs that got through last night. I couldn't pick one that was the... I, I suppose if I was to say Belgium were probably top of the, the 10 and that's not that's not a you know when you think of Sweden and Finland in the first semi-final they won the those probably you know there was a choice of what could get the, the, the top of the 10 you know it, it's a difficult one last night to say who who actually topped the top the poll Now you know? do we know who will be the interval act tomorrow night? Tomorrow night there's um, well Sonia who came second for the UK as we said in Mill Street in 2000 or in 1993 She's Liverpool. She's pure, pure uh, Scouse lass. And uh, she's performing in the interval. And then Sam Ryder, of course. And then there's a mix of previous Eurovision um, performers. What we believe and we don't know is um, it, it could be kind of all Beatles stuff. Okay. Whether that's right or not, we don't know, which which is very relevant. And as well as that, Ruslana from you, she was the first winner for Ukraine in 2004. She's done a pre-recorded performance from Kiev. Ah. So um that and, and that that's the interval. So um uh they they'd be spread out and I think there's gonna be a few different things again. Like we had Dustin and we had Bucksface and we had Scooch last night. There's going to be a few more as well and until rehearsal so they they've they've been tight lipped about about a lot Keeping of the stuff. It, yeah. So um yeah. So and this the same three presenters and Graham. Plus one, yeah. Now, can, can yeah, you explain to me how this is going to work? Because Graham is also doing the commentary on, on yeah. BBC if, One. If if you remember 1998, Terry Wogan, he presented with Ulrika and, you know, they did the introduction and then he went off to the commentary box and came back for the voting. All so right. Graham is doing similar tomorrow night. I'd say the four of them will come out. Then Graham will go to the commentary box. But Mel Giedroy, Right, I can never even say, you know, Mel and Sue, yeah. she's she's done commentary before for the semi-finals and that. So she's going to be taking over from Graham then. Graham and Hannah will both be doing the voting, uh, the live voting and uh, Julia and Alicia between the green room and different things like, Getting, you yeah. know, yeah, finish. Yeah, so, I, I mean, again, that clip with Graham and Timor last night, you know, was very good as well. You know, that, um, you know, they're, when they showed, like they've 30 years between them. I mean, they're saying Marty Whelan is the longest running um, commentator in, in, in Eurovision. He has 30 years or over 30 years. But Timur and Graham have 30 years between them. Okay. <laughs> so it, it, it says it all really, you know. Are there are there but, many Irish around? Liverpool is chock-a-block with Irish. Is I mean, it? it's a big Irish contingent population anyway. But there's, I mean, it's the, the flight is less than 30 minutes say, from Dublin. It's a bit longer from Cork, obviously. But there, there's huge Irish in, um, presence there. And that's like one of my friends is going for a match tomorrow. Didn't even know Eurovision was on. You know, so that's I was saying. You're going to have it like the buzz there is brilliant. And uh Having said that, regardless of where you're from, it's such your vision is a great, um, great. There's a, it's there's a great party atmosphere. It's like a, a a town festival, you know, a summer festival or something. And yeah. um, everywhere you go, you know, it's your vision. So yeah, there's a there's a big Irish crowd there, and um, it's um, 
it is what your vision is all about. The running order tomorrow night, Austria are opening the show. So that's that's a great opener. Yeah, it's and, a good song. Um, I, you know, I, I, and by the way, I'm still trying to get my head around that you actually have a friend who's not into the Eurovision. <laughs> <laughs> Believe you me, there's, there's very few. Uh, again, you know, yeah, and somebody didn't uh, even know Eurovision was on in Liverpool. I know, <laughs> I know. I, and somebody's asking, can you ask Johnny, are we allowed to vote tomorrow night as in oh, we Ireland? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and um, I I don't know who's do- calling in the votes for Ireland, but I know Catherine Tate, the comedian, is calling in the event for the UK, <laughs> and what people are hoping that she'll be doing it in the Nan guys. Oh, that know. would be fantastic. That <laughs> would be fantastic. So we, we, we don't know. We, we, it remains to be seen. Big news out this morning, um, as well, is that Luxembourg are returning next year for the first time. The day the last time they performed was in Mill Street in 1993, and they're returning to your vision in 2024. And do we know why Where, they've... Why, why? No idea. I think why it's they dropped to... Why they dropped out for 30 years? No, it, it's all down to the personnel in each broadcaster, really. I think that, you know, they said, right, we're not doing Eurovision, or, you know, we, for whatever reason. But, like, Eurovision have five wins in their, under their belt, you know, so... Yeah. Um, even though it's, four, you know, it's, it's, 40, it's 40 years since their last win, they're nearly as bad as us. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay, but they're, exactly. they're, they're back. Okay, I want you to call your top three, please. My top three. I'm going to go Finland in no particular order. I, uh, Finland, I think Italy, and what was the other one? Finland, Italy, and France. And France. Okay. All right. Yeah. Okay. So they're they're in in your top three. And is there some? Is there one that you'd like to win but you feel won't win? You know the way. I mean, I'm I'm a big fan of. Yeah. of I'd love to see Belgium do it, but I just don't think they yeah. will. I don't, if there's anyone, like Israel is going to be up there as well, I think. If there's one I'd like to win, I, I, I'd like France to win. I, I'd like France to win because I just think um, it's it's good. They've put a lot into it and they've gone out of their way to, to be successful in the last few years. They've really got their act together. But um, I just think France have been there for so long and they've pushed and pushed. And, they, you know, they just, a couple of years ago, they came second and, you know, they've done well. And... Um, you know, we were saying you, Olympics in Paris next year would be great to be Paris again for Eurovision. But we don't know. I I, I think France, but I, I think Finland, the, the one like Sweden, while it's very good in one sense, I don't want it to win because I don't think it's, I, they've had better that should have won previously. Okay, so, so for that and reason. I can but see, it, 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 it like, like everyone has their favourites. Uh, somebody's saying Croatia. It's It's got to be a Croatia. <laughs> Well, funny thing, Croatia. Is that the guy in the underpants? Class. Is that the guy in the guys in their underpants? The underpants. Yeah, oh, yeah. God, jeez. They, they, they're singing in second last place, and they're just before the UK, and the UK are in last position tomorrow. And they're saying like, why did they put Croatia before UK? Is it to make UK stand out, or is it just going to because the UK is going to bomb? <laughs> <laughs> you know, Conspiracy so, theories um, that it's very best. Listen, enjoy tomorrow night. That's what it's all about. Thank and you, as Trish. always, pleasure to have you on the program, Johnny. Thank you for and, that. And thanks a million. Take thanks care. Thanks for joining thanks. us. And uh, actually, I, I just I never have enough time with Johnny. He sent me on fantastic photographs from the Euro uh, Club, and it just made me want to be in Liverpool, surrounded by nothing but Eurovision. Oh eight one eight one zero three one zero three. John Paul's taking your calls. We'll text we'll what you can what, text our WhatsApp to oh eight six two one zero three one zero three. A break in news at twelve midday. 
Cork Today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie. There is a couple of people I want to give a shout out to because two of our regular texters were on asking me to play requests. Jim was on to say, Patricia, would you, would you wish Newmarkers John Scanlon, who was on your show a number of years ago about staying closed on the first Good Friday when the ban was lifted? And I remember that. He's getting married to the lovely Karen Fitzgerald. So congratulations to John and to Karen. Hope you have a wonderful day and lots of happy married uh, and all the best wishes for your married life uh, together. And then Michael from Castletown Bear was on to say, Patricia, would you wish my neighbour and lifelong friend Jerome Harrington, affectionately known locally, well, not just locally, he's known far and wide, as Jerry Blackball, and I'm sure there's a story behind that. He's uh, it's his 90th birthday today. Happy birthday, Jerry Blackball, aka Jerome Harrington. Happy birthday to you, Michael. Wants to wish you many, many more happy and healthy years. Thank you uh, for that. And also, just want to give a mention. Remember yesterday on the program when we were talking about how mistakes can be made at the supermarket at the checkout, and you need to be careful, and people need to be checking their till receipts, and people have given various examples of being overcharged, and we few undercharged at the till and people just, you know, there was words of advice saying check your till receipts just to make sure that you're not being charged for something that you didn't purchase or as some people pointed out you can actually get charged over overpriced something that's marked at a different price and then it goes it gets scanned at another price and in the middle of all of that discussion this lovely lady uh, called Eileen came on. She works at Tesco in Mahon Point and she was on. She is a checkout operator in Tesco and she was just lovely and she was explaining all about it. And she just came across as such a nice person. And I was thinking and I said it to her, you know, a joy, I'd say, to go into. Well, Lillian and her friend contacted us following my chat with Eileen to say that they do their shopping in Tesco in Mahon Point every Thursday morning. They're the early birds and they meet Eileen there most Thursdays and she's just a treasure uh, I, Lillian and her friend said she would actually put you in a good mood for the day and that came across yesterday I think for sure because people were even saying that they're the kind of they're the, the, the checkout operators they're the salt of the earth so I just want to acknowledge that and uh, thank you to Lillian who made contact with us yesterday 0818 103 103 on the Eurovision somebody said I thought Poland's song was lovely I did as well but if you look back on Spain's entry last year it's kind of very similar to that and people thought it was kind of a rip off of that. I think that's where the criticism came from but it's a catchy song uh, for sure. And then someone says, Patricia, where did Wild Youth come in Tuesday's semi-final? I think it was by far the best song and they were the best group that Ireland has sent in many, many years. I also thought they were the best group on the night in that semi-final. I was so disappointed that they didn't get through. I'm so disappointed. I've decided I'm not going to watch tomorrow night. Ooh, they're strong words indeed. Okay, we don't know at this stage where they came. There was 15 songs. It's possible that they came 11th, they might have only missed out by a point or two. It's also possible they came last and came 15th. We won't know the placings of both semi-finals until after the song contest tomorrow night. You can go online and, and I'll go online and I'll check it and I'll let you know on Monday. But we can't find out until then. They wait for the Eurovision Song Contest to end completely and then they release the full results of both the semi-finals <clears throat> so people are able to see where the votes came from and also they're able to see where they actually came. 0818 Hi Patricia, I agree with so many people who have contacted you today who are opposing the charges against the member of Angarda Siakona who was 
protecting us, the law-abiding citizens of this country. It's shocking that a protector of the law is being charged for protecting the law. I wouldn't normally suggest such a thing, but we should take to the streets in a mass protest to stand up for those who risk their lives to take care of us. I'm so sorry for that poor Garda and his family and I call on the powers that be to stop this appalling miscarriage of justice and to do it before night falls uh, today. And somebody else is saying, where's the link for the GoFundMe? I'll ask John Paul if he can find that for us. This was um, Stephen Breen in the Irish uh, Sun tweeting that earlier this morning a GoFundMe page has been set up to try to support the Guard. Um, And when John Paul put it through to me, which was mm, an hour and a half ago it was at 17,000 so we'll see if we can find out where it's gone to now and what is the name of that GoFundMe uh, page and I'll give it to you and then just staying on Gardaí but this is on a slightly different issue Michael says Patricia I'm just wondering have you seen today's paper about the guard the calls are now being centralised to a control centre in the city is this all calls or just emergency calls this will This will force a huge disconnect from local communities, especially in rural areas. Surely in policing local knowledge, surely in policing, local knowledge is key. Uh, Add this to the minuscule presence in rural stations. This really isn't good for communities, says Michael. This is a front page story that's making the examiner uh, today under the title Trusting Gardaí Eroded by the New Call uh, System. It's Liz Dunphy is writing about it. And Michael is right. The centralisation of Garda calls to a regional control centre it has left some communities feeling detached from their local station and it's led to claims that trust is now being eroded within members of the force. OK, it's a new centralised phone system and it reroutes all calls in County Cork away from the local station to a regional control centre and the regional control centre is in Anglesey Street in the city. It has been in place since the 3rd of May. Now, I certainly didn't see anything about it. I don't know if uh, John Paul got notification of it, but it's been in place since uh, last week. And it's part of a national initiative to centralise public contact with the force. However, it's less than a fortnight in place since it was brought in and senior guard sources speaking to the Irish Examiner say that officers have already been subjected to abuse by frustrated members of the public after they call to report a crime or they call to report suspicious activity uh, in uh, West Cork only for the call then to be rerouted to the regional control centre at Anglesey Street in the city where staff often lack detailed local knowledge and that was the first thing I thought of when I heard that and I know everything now you know it's either everything's getting computerised and going online or everything's getting centralised and we're told it's a much more efficient uh, system but I straight away thought of a very rural area in West Cork or in North Cork and somebody spots something suspicious and heretofore they'd ring and they'd get, get through to their local guard the station and if it, their local guard the station was closed it would be the next large town so they'd be talking to somebody who would have knowledge of the area but you'd have to feel sorry for whoever's answering the phones in Anglesey Street when somebody rings from out on the Beira or the Mizzen Peninsula or somebody rings from up in Duhallow and they're naming you know a well-known place in the well-known to anyone in that area and the person answering the call hasn't got a clue what anybody is talking about I suppose it's going to bring home to all of us 
the importance of every of all of us knowing our air code because at least then they, they'll have some hope of getting the message across as quickly as possible. But the system has already been introduced in the northwest of the country. That was in the first quarter of the year. Don't know if they had any similar complaints there or not. And the plan is it's going to be rolled out across the other two existing regional control rooms. That's the one for Waterford and it's, owned, it's also going to be rolled out in Dublin in the uh, coming months. But there is already complaints going in and uh, the Garda Representative Association President Brendan O'Connor said the GRA executives are to attend a briefing on the new system next week and while the GRA has always called for better technology he warned it could also compromise that personal touch that defines Irish policing. He says some feedback from their members already has indicated a frustration expressed by members of the public who no longer speak to a local Garda but instead are dispatched through the control room a long way away where they speak to somebody who has no knowledge of the geography, no knowledge of the location of where they are talking about. However, the examiner says a guard they're working in one of the four regional control rooms says the system needs time to bed in and they the person working on it says there's always some resistance when we bring in something new but it's just going the same way as the ambulance and the fire service it's new we have to give it a chance but Michael one of our listeners doesn't reckon it's going to work and is bemoaning the fact that the local the local knowledge and that is key to policing I think Michael is uh, right on that one 0818 103 103 John Paul taking your calls you can text or WhatsApp to 0862 103 103. The C103 Cork Diary. With Cork County Council delivering roads and housing, community and business supports all across the county. See corkcoco.ie. And the Carami Singers, they are presenting a musical evening tonight. It'll be in the Muintinatira Hall in Buttevant and they are starting at 8 o'clock. There's bingo on in the GAA complex in Mallow tonight, 815 jackpot 4,300 euro and there's also bingo on Friday nights in Kildare it's on tonight at 8 o'clock in the store at the Creamery Yard doors open at 7 with eyes down at 8 their jackpot is 1,700 euro for Moy Tidy Towns are holding a fundraising coffee morning tomorrow morning half 10 to 1 it's in the Wagon Tavern all are welcome and contributions can be made at the door and the Everyman Sunday songbook team uh, we spoke actually about this last week. They're bringing their swinging 60s uh, show to the Glen Theatre in Van Tier with Alf McCarthy, who spoke to us about it. That's tomorrow night. Tickets are still available at 029 And Catherine O'Sullivan is taking part in the Breakthrough Cancer Research Camino Challenge that kicks off on Monday and it runs through until the 22nd of May. Now, sadly, uh, Christine lost her husband, James, to a rare uh, cancer some years ago and Breakthrough Cancer Research is actually researching this particular form and many other forms of rare cancer. That's what they specialise in. So to honour her late husband, Christine is currently fundraising for the charity through her iDonate page and she's inviting people to please donate. iDonate.ie forward slash fundraiser forward slash Christine O'Sullivan. And St Brendan's National School in Bantry, they're fundraising for their new sensory room and they're holding a fundraising night tomorrow night from 7 to 9.30 in Bantry House with live music 
cheese and wine reception. There'll also be a silent auction and a tour of Bantry House. Tickets are available from the school by calling 027 51126. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. For motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie. And a reminder to you to celebrate our latest listenership results. And thank you uh, to everybody who takes, uh, takes time out uh, to listen to us every day. We are truly humbled uh, by our listenership figures. So thank you for that. But in order to celebrate, we're giving you your next big way to win. And it's coming soon here on C103. We just want to say thank you for listening. And by doing that, we're planning on sending one lucky listener along with a friend to see one music superstar. And you'll get to see this music superstar twice. How do you find out more? Well, Ken Tobin will have all of the details on how to win and next Monday morning at 8.15 only on C103. So make sure you're tuned into The Breakfast Show on uh, Monday to find out who that musical superstar is and where you and a friend will be going, could be going to see the musical superstar twice. OK, uh, th- that all happening on Monday morning. Now, Martin in West Cork has been on to us and this, I suppose, is to do with the cost of living. Everything is rising in prices and there's no sign of anything really coming down. And uh, Martin writes uh, by WhatsApp saying, Hi, Patricia, they, they say the definition of madness is doing the same thing over and over again and getting the same result. We are all generally intelligent and savvy people. Could we have a reasonable adult conversation about the alternative solutions to capitalism? We're not thick, we're not stupid, we're not dummies. Of course there are solutions or alternatives to capitalism. Definitely. Let's have an open, civilised debate on possible solutions or else we'll just all end up distressed in life as a community for a long, long time. There's a streamlined way to make things more convenient for everyone, says Martin in West Cork. We just need to have that uh, conversation. Martin, uh, you're right, because you won't be pleased to hear that shopping bills continue to increase Despite the supermarket chains, they have started to announce very small cuts in the price of some of the household uh, stables. But the price of food and non-alcoholic drinks actually went up by 13% year on year to last month. These are the latest figures that are coming out from the Central Statistics Office. And they said a situation that literally is piling pressure on family budgets and family budgets that are are already stretched. Supermarkets have been announcing some price cuts. Now, it's their own brand products. They brought down milk, they brought down butter and they brought down bread uh, this this week. Now, they've come a little bit too late to capture the latest inflation uh, figures, which, which would have been up to the end of April. But it's shown that prices are continuing to surge for the mainstays of the weekly shop. Now, overall inflation eased slightly last month, so that's good uh, compared to last year, even though the prices at the supermarket continue to rise. Now, inflation was up 7.2% in April when you compare it with the same month the same month last year. But if you look at the March figure, it is down slightly. The March figure was 7.7. We're down to 7.2. So it is inflation. Overall inflation is going in the right direction. But it's the 19th consecutive month in which the annual increase in the consumer price index has been at least 5%. So you add food prices are going up, energy prices remain high, mortgages have definitely gone up uh, sharply especially in the last month. All of those are highlighted by the Central Statistics Office. And then a breakdown of individual prices year on uh, year uh, particularly with some of the items that have come down in price. Bread for example 
a standard white slice pan. It's actually 23 cent more expensive than it was last year. If you opt for sliced brown bread, that's 18 cent uh, dearer. And the price cuts announced by the supermarkets they're only covering their own brands but the CSO uh, records of course show the price movement across all of the brands. Now statisticians the CSO said the average price of two litres of full fat milk that has gone up by 44 cent in a year. Butter has gone up by 66 cent when you compare it to the price we were paying in April of last year. And in percentage terms the food cost rises for households they're even higher high cost rise were also seen in sugar wasn't it funny we just spoke about Mallow Sugar Factory 17 years ago today it uh, closed and sugar is 39% not 39 cent 39% more expensive than what it was and what you would have paid for your bag of sugar this time uh, last year. Frozen fish, that's gone up 30%. And eggs, they're up 18% year on uh, year. And I suppose the one that we all talk about and the one we're all trying to save on, but it's proving to be very, very difficult, are electricity costs. Uh, year on year, electricity costs are up 51%. And if you are a gas customer at the same time, gas prices are up 56%. And then you add into that mortgage interest repayments they're up 41% compared to this time uh, last year and that of course is to do with banks and non-bank lenders they've all increased their tracker rates some variable uh, rates have gone up and of course there is much higher prices now for new fixed uh, rates they're all more expensive cost of house insurance according to the central statistics office year on year that's up 23% now the insurance industry are claiming that's to do with the inflation in construction and that's more expensive if you know if a house is badly damaged it completely needs to be rebuilt um, they say they've no other choice but to put up their premiums put 23% on house insurance and when prices last month are compared to the previous uh, month they were up 0.5 no they were 0.5% lower than uh, the the last month when they were 0.9%. Now, a number of economists are quoted in the papers today. Davy Stockbrokers, for example, they say the figures show persistent price pressures for householders. They say the increase in the price of food, very substantial. Davy Stockbrokers say that it was significant that there had been no cuts in the cost of residential electricity, no cuts in the cost of residential gas rates, especially when there has been reductions in other EU countries. So if other EU countries are able to do it, why are our utility companies not passing on those savings to us? And independent com, uh, economist Austin Hughes, he said that inflation is easing, but cost of living pressure remains problematic and they're not showing any signs of going in the opposite direction, certainly any time soon. And Marion Ryan, who we often speak with on the pro- uh, programme, she's the consumer tax uh, manager with the financial advisory firm taxback.com. She's warning consumers, this, the news isn't getting any better, that the incremental return of the excise duty rates on petrol and diesel, they're set to increase by six cents per litre for petrol, 
five cent per litre for diesel and that's coming in on the 1st of June so that's a little over two weeks away. Marion said this poses a serious risk to householders particularly those that live in rural locations they simply can't come back cut back on using the car. Marion Ryan said that without further financial assistance from the government many struggling families will find themselves simply dealing with unmanageable uh, debts and it's it's going to be really unfortunate when they start when they put back in the excise duty this is only the beginning they are going to be incremental rises across this year we're going to see excise duty going back on petrol and diesel because we feel we're getting a bit of a break with petrol and diesel because the prices have started to come down diesel is certainly coming down faster than petrol on the the way to work this morning I was I was filling up and for the first time in a while there's about a 10 cent difference now diesel is 10 cent cheaper than uh, petrol and yet come the 1st of June those increases are going to kick in Uh, 6 cent extra on the petrol and 5 cent extra on the diesel the first of those rises bringing us back up to the normal uh, excise duty rates when they they cut as a break with the government did when it went over to euro but it's going back on You're listening to C103's Cork Today podcast. Phone and text lines are currently closed. Cork Today on C103. And Mark Malone, our movie reviewer, joining me. Good afternoon, Mark. Hi, Patricia. Okay, two movies. Um, I'm unsure. Is this called Shazam or is it called Shazam or is it called Fury of the Gods? It's Shazam Fury of the Gods. Oh, Shazam Fury of the Gods. Okay. Um, And Operation Fortune is our second one. Okay, we have a trailer from Shazam. You play the part of a man. But you are a lost boy. Give us the powers or you will annihilate everything. You are very menacing. It's showtime! Alright, here's the situation. The daughters of Atlas are coming to hunt us. This is revenge. But we come bearing gifts. That's a hard pass. That's a hard pass. Come on! I might not have as much experience as you because I'm not, like, super old. But I've seen all of the Fast and the Furious movies. And it's all about... Family! Family! Guys, that was a signal! What are we looking at? Comedy action here? Uh, yeah, it's DC. Um, yeah. I, I presume the way you're talking, you haven't seen no, the first No, no, I haven't. <laughs> um, this is from DC as opposed to Marvel. And you know, the thing about DC is that uh, for, for years we've been kind of complaining about them, especially the Zack Snyder films of DC. They're all a bit dark looking and, the, you know, the whole kind of feel of them. Um, but when, when Shazam came along, it was very, very different to what we'd seen from uh, uh, DC over the past kind of 10, 15 years. This was light and bright and cheerful and it was funny and the characters weren't really taking themselves seriously and you know and I really liked the first film I thought it was really really entertaining uh, Zachary Levi plays the character Shazam and he is a terrific comic character and a comic actor and I really enjoyed it but then I do tend to enjoy as I think I've said this before the origin stories in both yeah. DC and uh, in um, in Marvel uh, as opposed to the sequels because uh, you know the origin stories tend to be very human and character driven it's about these people who suddenly find themselves with uh, 
uh, amazing powers. And that was the one of the funniest things about uh, the first film was about this uh, very, very young boy called Billy Batson. And he's being bullied at school. His life wasn't terrific. It wasn't necessarily terrific. And uh, suddenly he gets these magic powers and uh, he becomes Shazam, Shazam, well played by Zachary Levi. And so we've got this very young boy, 12 years of age, all of a sudden he's got all these powers and how does he deal with them? And it was in, in really, really funny film. Unfortunately, I think this uh, suffers from kind of sequelitis, really. They didn't know what to do. They knew they had to kind of get some kind of product out there. And really, it's the writing that kind of lets the film down, although it is quite entertaining, and especially when Zachary Levi is uh, on screen because, uh, you know, there was a lot of talk in the first film that uh, he was nothing like the young Billy Batson, that, in fact, he was much sillier than the character of uh, the young boy. And, in fact, they didn't address that here. It's exactly the same. In fact, if anything, when we see uh, meet Billy Batson, uh, who's now about 16, 17, he's much more mature than the character of Shazam. But that's, I'm fine with that because, you know what I mean, why not? I mean, you know, we're, we're talking about comedy. We're talking about kind of lighthearted kind of um, um, fun here. Um, even though it's called Fury of the Gods, the two yeah. gods here are played by Lucy Liu and Helen Mirren. Oh. Uh, they don't spend an awful lot of time being furious, maybe kind of slightly irked, to be brutally honest with you. Okay. I, I get the impression every time Helen Mirren is on screen, <laughs> she's thinking, just think of the check, just think of the money. Uh, yeah, it, it, I was surprised when I saw Helen Mirren's name on this. I was thinking, <laughs> this is a bit unusual for Helen Mirren, and I'm a huge fan of Helen Mirren. And so am I, both of Lucy Liu and Helen Mirren, yeah. but they're both pretty poor in the film. And I felt sorry mm. for them, actually, because, I mean, they do get, the writers get them to say some awful, stupid, silly things. And you do get the impression that they're just doing it for the big, big check that's coming their way. You know what I mean? And it's difficult for them as well. I mean, obviously, if you're addressing everything to a big green wall, I mean, it can be very, very difficult. And uh, there are times then when you're looking at it and you're watching them, and you, you, you get the impression they're not giving it 100%. But um, but the rest of the film, you know, it it does kind of let itself down. Basically, they're, they're two gods. They are the daughters of uh, Zeus, Helen and Lucy Liu. They are Hespera and Calypso. Okay. Every time I think about that, I think of a, an ice cream bar. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, so they've come to Earth to um, retrieve the golden apple, which is the seed of the tree of life. And this tree of life will uh, revive their realm. Um, but the problem is, is that Calypso, played by Lucy Liu, uh, wants to uh, plant it on Earth, but it'll destroy Earth in the process. Wow. Uh, now, uh, spoiler alert, at the end of the last, uh, the first film, Zachary Le- Levi gave his friends all the power of superheroes. So, they're su- so they switch between superheroes heroes and their own then uh, childhood lives and um, so in this film they basically go into battle uh, against Lucy Liu and uh, Helen Mirren and um, and that's basically it I mean the storyline is pretty simple uh, there's an awful lot of CGI there's, a, there's like there's a, se- a sequence which goes on for about 40 minutes I mean it's, a, it's an action sequence and it does become kind of tiresome uh, after a while uh, and then of course uh, you know when, one of the problems that I noticed that in these films are, you know, there's, there's never any talk about collateral damage because there is one very good sequence with this huge kind of um, dragon but the dragon is just destroying uh, skyscrapers in Philadelphia of course there are people in these skyscrapers but of course no mention of that there's no mention of that there's never any reference and the streets seem to be empty obviously the CGI guys didn't have enough money to kind of put people on the streets but of course if pieces of uh, you know um, of buildings are falling down I I thought we can't have people die you you would have people running away exactly so the streets are completely empty it's very very strange Um, there are a couple of closing credit scenes which um, kind of didn't really make 
make much sense. Look, um, I still recommend it. It's nowhere near as good as the first film. Uh, try and see the first film if you've never seen it because that's really, really good fun. Zachary Levi tries his best. He really does. But it's the writing here that kind of lets the, the whole film down. There is some very good CGI. Some of it is terrible, I have to admit. Um, but in, all in all, it was it was pretty entertaining enough uh, for me, uh, even though it's um, uh, slightly disappointing and uh, is nowhere near, as I say, as good as the first film. Okay, mark it out of 10. I'll give it six. Six out of 10. Okay, now the second movie is Operation Fortune. Yes, this is from uh, Guy Ritchie. Uh, oh, who, who's had he's been married to Madonna. Madonna. Yeah, who's had a very interesting career. I mean, he started with these kind of gangster movies in London. And he then did, he, yeah. And then he married Madonna. He yeah. made a terrible film with her. He did. Yeah, yeah. and he made a terrible film called Rock and Roller and his career looked as if it was going nowhere. Uh, and then uh, he suddenly turned it around with a couple of Sherlock Holmes films which are very good with uh, Robert Downey Jr. Oh, they were excellent. They were very, yeah, very good. excellent. And he even worked for Disney. He made the live action uh, Aladdin with uh, Will Smith a couple yeah. of years ago which was all right. Yeah, you know, yeah that was good. Like, I enjoyed that, yeah. Yeah, his previous film to this one was a film called The Gentleman where again he went back to kind of his uh, London kind of gangster kind of uh, the scene. and in Which that, he's good at. Which he's very, very good at and I mm. really like that movie. There was a there, there was a character that Colin Farrell uh, portrayed called The Coach and we were, people and fans were hoping that we'd see more of him. Mm. Uh, also in that film too uh, was Hugh Grant. Uh, basically Hugh Grant is in this as well and he's playing the same character really even though they've got different names but he's playing one of these guys you know, really, really sleazy. Hugh Grant fan? Oh yeah, I think he's absolutely terrific. Yeah. Especially when he's playing this kind of character because you know he's having a lot of fun. Uh, this is um, a Bond movie, really, is what it is. Um, you know, uh, Carrie Elwes plays this character called Nathan. He's basically M. Uh, Jason Statham is basically James Bond. Even the music, the music is by a man by the name of Chris Benstead. I mean, he is channeling his best John Barry. You know what I mean? <laughs> it, this is a Bond movie. It really is. Um, so basically... Uh, and why not? Uh, exactly. Exactly, exactly. And uh, but mind you, uh, Guy Ritchie, I think he did uh, Mission, no, not Mission Impossible. He did uh, The Man from Uncle a couple of years ago, oh. uh, which again was was okay. And uh, it was kind of similar to this in the sense that, um, you know, the film looked beautiful. It was um, it's very classy looking, classy um, kind of clothes, um, locations. Um, but underneath it all, uh, not really a great deal of depth. And I think that's the problem with uh, this film. And, and um, it just needed more of, of, of everything. It kind of reminded me of uh, what watching the Ocean's Eleven's films, you know, 11, 12 and 13. Yeah, yeah. You watch them, you enjoy what you're watching. It's uh, it's very well put together, very well directed, very well acted. But at the in the end of it, you know, by the end of it, you're thinking, well, what did I just watch? You yeah. know what I mean? Because I don't remember anything about it. Not them. memorable at all. Exactly. And I yeah. watched this on Monday and this morning when I woke up, I thought, well, <sighs> what am I going to talk about? I, don't, I have no idea what I'm going to talk about this film because um, there's a lot of talk, which is okay, especially when you've got good actors. There's not really a huge amount of action although Jason Statham does his thing uh, every now and then. Aubrey Plaza is part of the team where they've got to try and retrieve a thing called the handle, uh, which is uh, something that can be programmed to defeat any uh, security system in the world. So they've got to put this kind of James Bond, uh, Mission Impossible type team uh, together. Uh, so uh, you've got Carrie Elways, you've got Jason Statham. Aubrey Plaza plays this kind of hacker who can hack into everything. She's one of those. She's basically got a small little laptop, but if they say, we need to hack onto this uh, security in. system, you know, give me, give me 30 seconds do you know what I mean? 
And uh, also in the film is Josh Hartnett as well, who plays kind of this actor who they um, they kind of um, managed to, you know, uh, make a part of the team because they know that uh, Hugh Grant, who is selling this uh, particular um, programming kind of security system, uh, they know that he is his favourite actor. And so they go to, um, to Cannes to try and retrieve it. Uh, there's also a character in it called Bugsy Malone with a Z. I, I, I spotted that. <laughs> and uh, but he, he, he doesn't really get a, very much to do. So look, all in all, it's, it's okay. Do you know what I mean? It's not, it's, it's, again, it's not brilliant, but it's not terrible. It's just one of those films that, uh, you know, you enjoy once you're watching it, but it's, 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 but it's, you won't uh, remember it's forgettable. It. You won't remember it. Yeah. Okay, so mark that out of 10. Operation uh, I'll, Fortune? I'll give it a six as well. Six. But I would okay. recommend both, you know, yeah. to, to people. Yeah. Do watch them. Uh, but uh, unfortunately, they're not as good as hopefully, you know, they, they could have been and should have been maybe. Okay, listen, thank you for that. We'll chat okay. again next uh, Friday. That is Mark Malone, our movie reviewer. 0818-103-103. I was talking about the price of groceries and the latest figures out from the Central Statistics Office, unfortunately, showing that while inflation continues to fall, general inflation... Uh, the price of food was remaining stubbornly uh, high. Uh, Mag says, I predict the cost of living is mostly due to lack of action, I feel, by the government. As far as I'm aware, people who are renting can claim t- a tax relief from landlords. That is, except if your landlord is a TD. Is that correct? Am I reading it correctly? I'm not aware you've, you've spotted that, uh, Mags, but certainly no. Uh, we've covered the issue of the tax. This is the 500 tax credit that you can get uh, for renting and it's a thousand if it's um, a couple who are both working. The only where the only time you can't claim it and we've discovered a lot of people can't claim it is if the house isn't registered with the RTB and the only person that can register the property with the RTB is the landlord and we've had a, a number of tenants who say they don't want to rock the boat, they don't you know they're terrified, they don't, they don't want to engage with their landlord at all for fear their landlord might turn around and decide I'm going to to sell the property. Uh, so for that reason they're foregoing the €500 Euro a year and when you look at how high some of our rents are 500 is only a drop in the ocean but the €500 Euro might as well be returned to you from the revenue f- uh, via revenue rather than it staying with the exchequer. But no, I certainly haven't read anything to say that if the owner the, the, the TD is a landlord then you can't uh, claim it. Now remember we covered that, we looked into figures oh, a couple of months ago the number of TDs that are landlords have fallen. There's an awful lot of TDs have got out of being uh, landlords. A few have, have maybe one house, they, they almost class themselves as accidental landlords. The only real big landlord who's a TD is Michael Healy Ray. He has a number of, of uh, properties but no certainly there's nothing in the Act to say that if you're renting from a TD you can't claim your tax back. 0818103103 and just to say to somebody somebody sent us in a text saying uh, just leaving see you in an hour you've sent it to the wrong number just in case that you're trying to get that urgent message to somebody and Michael has been back on who raised the issue that's making the front page of the examiner today to do with the centralisation of Garda calls they're going to a regional control centre every single call now across County Cork is getting rerouted into Anglesey Street and Michael is fearful that it's taking local knowledge away from the Gardaí and I was making the point that if you have your air coach it's going to be more important now to have your air coach ready if you do make a call so that at least whatever service hopefully will be able to find you but Michael says Patricia that's not the answer either because he said in rural areas including my own area it said Michael and I'm assuming Michael is texting from West Cork the air coach 
can send you the wrong by roads locally. It happens frequently here in my area. And what happens if this is an emergency and you're talking to a central Garda control centre and they don't understand the local vacancies of the county roads? You have some chance if it is into a local station that the call has been answered as they might have an idea of what the road network is like. I really feel the continuous centralisation is a disaster waiting to happen. I saw it firsthand a number of years ago when an ambulance was needed and the control centre couldn't relay the directions properly and the ambulance was driving around for ages. We ended up having to get a neighbour out of their bed in the middle of the night to go and find the ambulance and bring the ambulance to what was a very ill uh, person. Uh, and I couldn't go myself, says Michael. I couldn't leave the ill uh, person. So centralisation isn't always the best way to go. I need to go now. My thanks to John Paul McNamara for producing. Nick Richards with you for the afternoon and we'll be back with you on Monday morning at 10. Until then, I'm Patricia Messenger. Very good Court afternoon. Today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. See MIG.ie